Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Flash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview.
Good evening. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch. First, please le- let me please allow me to recognize our founder, Marianne Russo, and co-moderator May Wilkinson, who will be helping out with our Twitter tweet chat tonight. And tonight, our guest is Dr. Zachary Warren. Dr. Warren has a unique perspective on autism. He is the director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders, also known as Triad, and is the director of Autism Clinical Services. As the name triad implies, Dr. Warren and his staff are actively engaged in the research, treatment, and education of children on the autism spectrum. Dr. Warren, welcome to the Coffee Glatch. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Warren, can you please tell us a little bit about triad? Yeah, so um, triad is a, a part of a larger center at Vanderbilt. It's a part of an intellectual and developmental disability research center, uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, uh, IDDRCs, as they're sort of coined now, and their centers essentially for advancing research and science, uh, for understanding um, developmental disorders, including autism. And Triad is an institute housed within that center that is, is essentially devoted to facilitating clinical services training programs and research programs that are designed to basically uh, help families um, of individuals with autism and individuals with autism themselves um, in a number of different capacities. It's been around for about 20 years or so. I've been uh, with and affiliated with Triad for about five years. And sort of how we started was uh, in a a fairly rural state. The former director, Dr. Wendy Stone, um, really utilized um, 
the university and the university's name to develop uh, a statewide sort of uh, training and learning collaborative network with the Department of Education. And really, that has been sort of the cornerstone of our work for, uh, you know, the past couple of decades, really developing networks to try and train, teach, and uh, reach as many parts of uh, Tennessee and basically the region now. In addition to doing those training activities, Triad's been devoted to uh, facilitating the development and enhancement of clinical services, uh, primarily um, with our attachment and affiliation with the, the children's hospital. So I direct um, some of our autism services or help organize our autism services within the, the, the pediatric hospital right now, um, really trying to, to develop model systems for not only identification but um, more effective handoff to service systems. Um, and then a, a huge component of what we do as well is really to try and uh, partner with research scientists, and, and this is either through, you know, sort of consortium research programs or with the scientists from all the different disciplines, uh, you know, biomedical to very behavioral at Vanderbilt to help provide them with the resources, um, sort of uh, technical expertise and consultation to make sure that they're able to do the work that they want to do. Um, so, so that's a bit about Triad. I've been with them for, for five years, directing it for the past uh, two years. I'm a, a clinical psychologist by training. Um, I actually um, got into um, working in this field. I had, uh, my graduate work was more in terms of um, working with infants and toddlers who had experienced severe abuse, trauma, and neglect in inner city Miami years and years and years ago and really was very interested in understanding, you know, the implications that those uh, adverse conditions really had for impacting social and communication development in a really deleterious way. And that expertise in terms of understanding social and communication sort of development really lended me more to working with understanding, trying to understand um, autism in its earliest form. Um, so that's probably uh, a lengthier explanation than you wanted, uh, but that's a no, bit that, of my that, background. That, no, that's great. Now, you've recently published a comparative effectiveness review uh, titled Therapies for Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders. Can you give us uh, a parental executive summary of, of your study? Sure. So um, I, I think the first thing to know about that study is this is a study that was commissioned, um, and it was commissioned by um, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is an organization that's uh, really committed towards uh, trying to understand um, interventions, therapeutics that can uh, be translated on a consumer level. So taking sort of you know, what we know, whether that be about autism or whether that be about a, you know, a, a, a medication for overactive bladder, mm -hmm. you know, or oftentimes we right. sponsor through these EPC networks, you know, what do we really know? And, and this was a topic that was nominated to ARC through Autism Speaks and then also um, uh, the, the Medicaid sort of learning collaborative. So the state Medicaid medical directors uh, really are in the position of really trying to figure out how best um, to serve individuals with autism in many different capacities and having to make financial decisions that I would hate uh, to be making myself, but they're in that position of having to do that, particularly in a time where it's really tight um, in terms of making uh, those, those uh, decisions based on a lot of resources. But the, So this, that's the, you know, the summary of how that was conducted. And then basically what we do is we apply um, 
EPC techniques, so evidence-based practice centers. There's a network of them around North America, and they have very specific sort of methodologies for saying, okay, let's go after, you know, uh, all of the literature there and, and, and through a specific design try and synthesize it down to levels that would speak to either specific outcomes or specific populations or specific decisions. And so that was the the, the, the focus of this initial report was to say, well, what do we really know? And this was the, the original report was for children explicitly. It was for um, individuals who were 12 and under and their families and saying, what do we know about services? And we did a comprehensive literature survey and tried to break that down on the level of saying, you know, really what what do we know about the strength of the evidence that exists there? And uh, mm-hmm. it's a very un, un, unusual, uh, not unusual, unusual is the wrong word for it, but it's a hard approach to understand because they talk about strength of evidence ultimately in these EPC reports. So they're saying, you know, <laughs> right. do we have the data that suggests X, Y, and Z? And oftentimes what we found, unfortunately, in terms of many areas of the research for autism spectrum disorders, we don't yet have the data that really help us on a consumer level understand what specifically we need to be doing for a specific child, for a specific family, in a specific community and know what the results are going to be. You know, a lot of people, and and so in many respects, um, there's not, uh, there's insufficient evidence for helping guide a lot of these key decisions that need to be made um, and that we think are going to have potentially very potent um, effects in terms of neurodevelopmental trajectory. We just don't have the evidence that we want to have. Um, You know, in terms of what we did find strength of evidence for was, um, certainly within the field of sort of um, intensive um, educational behavioral interventions and developmental interventions, um, uh, some brands of, of ABA packages are starting to mount evidence bases that are stronger and stronger. Unfortunately, some of the methods are still weaker than we would like to see, and there are some novel interventions for um, even young younger children that are, are thinking about a more uh, developmentally appropriate methodology for um, applied behavior analysis services for very, very young children. And then within the medication field, there's also some evidence that specific medications work for a specific set of behaviors. Unfortunately, those behaviors are, are pretty limited, limited to you know, um, irritability, aggression, agitation, uh, not run of the mill core symptoms that we know of autism and the medications that had the mm-hmm. data often have really, really potent side effects um, that go along with them right. too. And, you know, one of the hardest parts about this study is that um, what we're talking about, interventions that oftentimes are delivered um, um, in, in, in complex combinations um, over long periods of time, it's really hard to study these things. You really have to put a lot of resources behind it to give us the answers that we want. So end of the day, a couple things come out. There are a couple of complementary alternative interventions that despite early sort of promise, um, just we had strength of evidence for saying, hey, that's not there anymore, and that was with Secreta. Mm-hmm. For um, early intensive behavioral interventions, there's um, uh, a mounting but still low strength of evidence in terms of understanding how UCLA and LOBOS-based ABA approaches are going to impact preschool-age children, right? Their age range is kind of restricted. And then we had a, uh, a fairly strong moderate to high for a couple of anti, uh, excuse me, a couple of atypical antipsychotic medications in terms of being able to treat um, symptoms of irritability, aggression, etc. So that's a long explanation right. again, but the, 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 it's 
it's hard. I think one of the things that was hard for us about doing this report is that we knew that there would be a certain interpretation on some side that um, um, when po this would hit popular media, that there would be a smaller percentage that would say these researchers are saying that things don't work for autism. And, and that's not what's being said at all. Um, what's being said is right. that we don't have the evidence that we want to have, that we need to have on that consumer and clinician uh, level to be able to help, you know, as a, as a clinician who's essentially devoted my life to, in my professional life, to, to uh, helping individuals with autism and their families. That was that was a tough thing to know going into this report, that uh, there would be um, uh, a certain percentage of take that would come out that way. You know, if, you know yeah. I don't like to look at popular press with things around this, but there were a few in our center certainly loves this. This is what they do, right? They're trying to call attention to developmental disabilities and right. the need for more mm -hmm. service research, et cetera. But there were some articles coming out saying, you know, uh, Dr. Warren says, you know, uh, there's no evidence that therapies work for children with autism. And, right. and, you know, that's not what we were saying at all. But and the important right. thing behind this, too, was was that we knew we were going to get that flack. So some might say, you know, well, why do this at all? But at the end of the day, what this is doing is, is really putting out there, and not just to folks who have had to live this before, right, of of living that, that, that process of saying, I would do anything that I possibly could for my child, um, and uh, not having folks who could point them in a particular direction, but also for those who are really in the position of power for making decisions, of saying, you know, we, you know one of, we knew we would ultimately get to the hands of, you know, state, um, you know, Medicaid directors who would be saying, okay, I right. need to be doing something here. What should I be doing? And so it's tricky, you know, and it's it's a, an interesting climate sometimes, the field of autism spectrum disorders amongst researchers, um, parents, clinicians, et cetera. Sometimes we can line up in a circular firing squad rather than getting all together, you know, sometimes. And yeah. we're a little worried about some of that. But at the end of the day, I think what this this hopefully said is that, we know some things, but it's far too limited, and we need to be redoubling our efforts in a major way yeah. um, in, uh, mm -hmm. to, to really, you know, tackle this problem. And the next step we're involved with now is saying, you know, what well, it's certainly not enough to be talking about young children and early identification and early intervention. And we're, we're, we were commissioned to do a companion to this that is basically talking about, well, tell us about young adulthood and, and tell us about the uh -huh. transition from adolescence to young adulthood because right. if you think right. there's a low strength of evidence for therapies and interventions and plans for young children, then oh my goodness, let's talk about adolescence and young adulthood and say we right. really need uh, in a desperate way um, to be to be focusing on research here and research that matters. Um, Right. So uh, again, that was a, a bit of a monologue to a very simple question, but uh, uh, you know that, well, that, sure. that's well, how I summarize the research. Uh -huh. Well, aside from that study, um, can you share with us any any potential breakthroughs that that you have seen when it comes to autism research? In, in terms of you know what's coming, what am I interested in, or what do I think are novel sort of ways of, of thinking about it, or is, um, what are novel ways of thinking about it? What um, is there any promise out there with the research? You know, has has your research shown um, any kinds of you know is is early intervention? Are we sure. seeing any kind of uh, breakthroughs with yes. with early intervention or things like that? 
I, I think I'm most excited about, um, and, but this is my bias, right? I told you, you know, why I got into studying things in general. Sure. I'm just inter- in, interested in early social communication development, infants and toddlers, and that runs across the, the, the spectrum, not just the autism spectrum, but the spectrum, you know, typical to, to many different difficulties. I, I think I'm really excited by the prospect that we now have in hand and having mounted evidence for this idea that we are capable of putting into uh, play systems of care that can meet comprehensive needs of very, very young children at risk for autism or where we were able to identify it at a much younger age. So I, I really, you know, think about this model and certainly that um, – uh, Jerry Dawson and Sally Rogers have put out in the Early Start Denver model, which has said, okay, well, you know, <laughs> we don't want to be uh, drilling uh, 18-month-olds uh, around certain skills. We need to find out effective, uh, comprehensive intervention paradigms that can meet them where they are and really robust, uh, robustly impact where they're going to go. And, you know, seeing data that can make those shifts from uh, children who are accurately identified under two years of age and who they've followed up before and who are now being followed up at six, where within the context of that type of study, I think they're moving towards, at least for some individuals, not all, but for some individuals, they can, in in an ethically appropriate manner, talk about prevention or recovery, that to me is very exciting. Um, the limits really? are obvious. Uh, and this is not for all, right? But this is for some children uh, where right. we're able to identify before two years of age, really apply state-of-the-art methodologies that, quite frankly, aren't necessarily available to the folks that we would like them to be available to right now in wide form, mm-hmm. but are developing Um that, you know, following up now at age six, that there are some children where clinicians are able to say, wow, I'm not sure that I would be talking about this child as displaying any impairment at this point in time. Now, that's not the majority, but what that's telling me is that it is a worthwhile prospect towards thinking about how can we go lower and lower and lower and lower in terms of um, early development so that we could impact sort of core skills that are going to feed and cascade into really nice social learning opportunities so mm-hmm. that children are, uh, can be engaged in uh, more of the ways that their their folks and those in their environment would like them to be engaged and can learn more through the, some of those processes. So that's very exciting to me. I think it's also very exciting to uh, be working with um, you know larger and larger and larger uh, studies that are looking for um, the various different causes of autisms um, and um, seeing some of those play out, not in the numbers that we would like to, but uh, certainly now being able to identify, you know, um, uh, examples of what we would hope would happen for a majority of individuals over time that we might be able to identify specific early differences in terms of genetic profile that in some cases might be linked to, let's say, a metabolic disorder or linked to, you know, the inability to uh, synthesize a specific protein and that we might have ways of remediating some of that early in development. That's exciting to me. Again, this is not happening on the level that I would like to, but on some of the genetics collections, they're now identifying small, you know, copy number variants that are linked to specific biological processes, and those specific biological processes can be attended to, um, not necessarily in curative ways at this point, but it's it's a push, you know, it's where things are moving, um, not as fast as we would right. like it, but those are promising. So, so do you think this kind of uh, research is, or are these? These tests that you foresee are these something that would be done with a, a child in her, you know, very early 
days or months of infancy, or would it be something done in utero or even before that? Would it be genetic testing with no, parents? No, I, I, don't, I don't think it would be anything that would be done. In, 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 we're not at that level at right. all. But okay. we're, what we're able to, probably able to do better uh, in terms of, of, of more realistic, uh, more appropriate sort of um, uh, plans in terms of surveillance and screening is, is you know, I mean, we this started out, you know, heel pricks and blood samples for newborns. Um, uh, uh, you know, started for a very, very small percentage of that. It will move forward, but that the, the other part of this too is that you know, autism we know is uh, has a huge neurogenetic influence, but it's not all neurogenetics at the same time. You know, you can look at identical twins, and you can look at some of the twin samples, and you'll say, well, those folks sharing 100% of their genetic material or really, really sizable percentages, they're not sharing the diagnosis 100% of the time. That tells us that there's something else very complex affecting that neurogenetic development that's going to make it imminently complex to figure out how to help there. I do think, though, uh, being involved with some of the prospective sibling studies, so this is for families who are interested in participating in, in studies where they um, have a child with autism and um, have had a new baby, and they're mm-hmm. oftentimes, uh, some are not monitoring at all, some are intensively monitoring. I had my first child one month after I started, you know, devoted myself to running autism clinics, and I was watching my children uh, like a hawk just because of my exposure. Right, but it right, was right. infant studies of being able to say, okay, wow, there might be some ways, and they're not going to be simple observations. They're not going to be simple genetic tests. They're going to be a complex paradigms of being able to pair together biological and behavioral data to say we need to be attending to something here. Something matters here, um, and it's likely going to be a combination. And a complex combination of markers, and it's not something that um, I think will be something we can pinpoint at one point in time. I think the complexities of autism really suggest to me that, you know, fundamentally it is a, a disorder of um, learning early on, right? And learning mm-hmm. is, a, is a dynamic process. It's not something that's static, but if we're right. able to, right. via complex behavioral and biological sort of methods, understand where learning trajectories are differing, right? Um Mm-hmm. then we might be able to kind of make an impact on that trajectory itself. That's yeah. when you get into the realm of talking about prevention for me or talking about um, of really exciting developments um, early on. Um, so yeah. those, those are some of the things that I'm very interested in. I'm also very interested in, um, you know, the scientists, and this isn't what I do, but um, some of my close colleagues are, are very interested in understanding, um, you know, uh, different models, um, uh, genetic models of the disorder, and, and, and thinking about ways of mapping that onto treatment. So, you know, certainly people have been doing this in the realm of, realm of fragile X, and fragile X and autism are not synonymous, but, you know, uh-huh. there's certainly a co-occurrence there. And I think there will be other models over time. The unfortunate reality, I think, for the genetic world is that <laughs> genetics is pretty darn complex, right? And I yeah. think what we've yeah. already learned in a short period of time is that there is not a genetic answer for autism, that there are likely right. hundreds of genetic contributions and not cause mm-hmm. necessarily contributions to what we know about autism spectrum disorders. Right. So being able to break that down is going to be very, 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 very complex. But it might give us more yield in terms of where we stand now. You know, one of the things about our report is that, you know, we couldn't, you know, pinpoint for an individual child how do we need to meaningfully vary this in a level that's going to make more impact on that learning trajectory. What now we do is pretty much apply 
fairly standard models of what we think best practice should look like, right? You know, and, and we do that from a behavioral and educational angle, and we are often talking about uh, lots of services, many services, many hours a week over long periods yes. of time. But being able yes. to tell a family, you know, well, you know, based on these other sort of things, these are the specific things that really need to be tied in there, right? Or these are the things yes. that you should be able to expect in terms of return. I think that's another hard thing. Right. You know, I think, yes. um, yes. you know, not being able to comment on that idea of, of where this is necessarily going to go is a really hard thing when you're sitting with a family at two years of age and talking about autism. Yes. I think good parents really want to know, you know, is this autism? If so, what do I do about it, right? And then the most right. meaningful okay, question so, perhaps is over time, what does this mean? Right. So, okay, so, you know, fast forward uh, 12 years, 15 years, um, uh, you know, especially it's as close to me, you know, my son is, he's, uh, getting through his junior year in high school and now the post high school years are coming on. Uh, so parents with, with young teens and, and young adults, what should we be doing to help with our kids at this stage? You know, this, do you, do you have any advice for, uh, you know, for helping our kids, you know, it, it, not early intervention, but, you know, we, we know what we're dealing with. We know our kids are – we want our kids to get out there and, and uh, um, be able to um, uh, interact in, in society. And so what should we be doing for our children at this point? Right. You know, I think there's a, a really uh, – one of my colleagues here, Eric Carter in special education at Vanderbilt, um, really wonderful guy who does a lot of research um, with individuals with um, severe intellectual disabilities, not, not, not autism specifically, but sometimes autism, and, and really uh, uh, focuses in on this period of, you know, uh, transitioning from high school to non-high school and thinking about it from uh -huh. one of the capacities that I think most parents have as a marker of sort of success to a certain extent, and that is thinking about um, jobs or occupation or employment or other right. sort of opportunities. <clears throat> And I was listening to him speak to one of sort of his projects that was embedded within uh, Wisconsin, where he came from before here, was really doing some longitudinal work and saying, you know, what, what is it that we need to be doing um, in, um, to, to really be fostering better outcomes? You know, I mean, because he was presenting, you know, the scary data that I think we're all fairly um, um, and acutely aware of, of, of not necessarily feeling like um, individuals with autism are adequately employed or employed at all um, at, at the percentages we would like to see. Um, and that's certainly when uh, economies are taking downturns, that even takes, a, I think, a, another impact in terms of what's happening. Uh, one of the most interesting things I learned from, from, from looking at his work very closely was this idea of um, connection um, to community mm -hmm. yeah. in a very, very broad sense. And so they were working with, you know, many different community partners um, to think about this. And it was this idea of finding those individuals within the communities that really connected folks um, in a powerful way. And it wasn't one-to-one. -one, you know, so it was interesting. You know, there were different communities were doing this in very different ways. But, but the results that we were seeing for, for much more positive outcomes were for communities that were really getting together and talking about this idea with the people who um, 
had the ability to translate that throughout sort of employment or business sort of communities as well. You know, that they were actually sort of talking to the people who were involved in, you know, varied from where right. it was. Sometimes it was the guy who ran the local diner. Sometimes it was, you know, the more formal sort of, you know, uh, 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 chamber of commerce folks or the mayor or other uh-huh. individuals. But really this idea of <laughs> if we want our, our, our children, our young adults, our, if we want individuals with autism at large employed at a higher level within our community, one, we need to be talking about that employment and those opportunities, not, um, you know, once we're done, but we need to start talking about that very early on, and we probably need to be embedding that and priming that up very, very early within the educational um, sort of uh, systems that, that, that children are involved with, and that, you know, one of the biggest predictors of later employment as prior employment, right? And that goes for you or I or anyone else. But that idea of, you know, if if we're not having that all along the way, um, then that's a predictor that's not there. And if you're talking about an individual who might have some vulnerabilities towards achieving that ultimate outcome, then does that suggest that you should do less or wait? Or does that suggest that, oh, my goodness, we actually need to be doing more earlier in a very explicit way about those opportunities if we want to push for that type of success. So, you know, that that's mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, you know, when you ask that question, I don't have an answer, right? You know, but when I when sure. I think about yeah. those models that I think think about success, those are the things that I start thinking about. When parents are start asking that question very early on about you know, that terror of of sending their child off to college or their child living mm-hmm. on their own in their first apartment and just saying like that, you know, and if I project, you know, from my 13-year-old or my 15-year-old and I forget how old you you said that uh, your son or daughter was, I apologize. But, you know, if I project yeah. out at that point, you know, I'm right. scared. I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, we need to start thinking about, you know, the staircase, the steps that are going to get us from point A to B. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have yep. to be very, very explicit, very concrete about this on a level that you probably don't want to be, right? You were hoping that, you know, right. a little bit of this would, would be a little bit more natural or osmotic or something like that. But it, but it's really about if you want um, this to be happening, here's how we have to get very, very concrete and explicit about this you know i think you know it it applies to jobs it applies to independent sort of adaptive sort of skills it applies to those topics that are hard for us to talk about like sexuality right if you think it's you know Mm -hmm. that an individual that might have some developmental vulnerabilities needs less education or support in that area rather than more um then you might have some challenges right you know i mean i think that's 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 i think what what i'm coming to terms with that reality now and, and the other part of that is is that unfortunately we don't have great systems that are telling us exactly how they've done that before, right? And they don't have necessarily right. the models. But quite frankly, right. we don't have necessarily that even as we go down young and young and young, you know. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. I think you learn from the successes of other individuals, but I think that sense of connection to community, talking about this and doing something about that talk is what's very important. Right. Um, right. So, connection to community, talking about it and doing something about the talk. Those are, that's, Actually, some really good advice. Yeah. Um, great advice. So, uh, Dr. Ward, I have one, one last question for you, and I always like to ask my guests for uh, a takeaway, you know, a, a solitary bit of advice for parents to carry as they journey, you know, through this maze and haze of autism. So can you give us one piece of advice that we can carry uh, along? Wow, that's a, a, a very, very tough question. Um, <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, I, I think 
you know, in in that way, I guess you know, sort of my outer response is that that there's not one answer, there's not one right. solution, and oftentimes right. there can be many, many, many different pathways to achieving um, the goals that you want to have, and sometimes those goals might even change along the way, but not let not necessarily become less valuable or less important. Right. Um, you know, I often talk with parents who are either very concerned about their decision about what intervention service this one versus that or or schools is it this classroom versus that classroom or as we move to middle schools you know you know this Mm -hmm. friend that friend this program that or as we're transitioning out this one this and you know sometimes my my answer my step back is just as a dad and a human being is we've we've got to take care of ourselves take some of those deep breaths and understand that part of this is that (laughs) this is a decision right like this is not the decision when I think about my own kids and decisions for school it feels like the decision i usually give mm-hmm. individuals sort of a feedback of like it's okay to screw up every once in a while you know this is a decision yep. it's important that we make yep. it as best we can but it is a decision we're going to have lots of them and there are many yep. opportunities for really kind of um uh, thinking about making good decisions and, and learning from some of those poor over time so anyway that's yeah. kind of a, a, a cop out but that's where i'd leave you well no actually dr warren that's not a cop out at all i think that's pretty good advice you know i what i'm hearing you say is you know there is a direction but there's not necessarily a path that we need to take there may be many paths and you said don't be afraid to make a decision and it's just a decision it's not the decision i think that's great advice so dr warren with that we're out of time but i really want to thank you for being on our show tonight greatly appreciate it all right take care. all right thanks a lot all right, all right good night and everybody thanks a lot uh, uh to the coffee clutch and we will be talking to you later thanks a lot Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.